me ask you now to take out your Bibles and let's open them up to the book of Romans and chapter 11. The book of Romans and chapter 11. Okay, so we're still in our series, God of Glory, talking about the glory of God. Well, we've already seen that the person and the work of God are worth thinking about. Right? We, we saw David's resolve to meditate on uh, the character of God and, and the works of God in Psalm 145.5. We've already seen that God is massively great. Psalm 145 verses 1 through 3, that his, his greatness is unsearchable. He's massively great. We saw last Sunday night that our God is supremely glorious. Psalm 138.5, He is great in glory. And all of that was to put us in a position where we can now tackle uh, this morning's subject. And it is a huge subject. Um, We're taking on something big here. Uh, This morning's sermon is entitled, The Purpose of Everything. The Purpose of Everything. Of everything. And I warned you at the beginning of this sermon series that we would be dealing with big picture questions. And this is the big picture question What is the meaning of it all? Why are we here? Why is anything here? What's, what's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of this world and everything within it? To which you might be thinking, we shouldn't tackle questions like that. Maybe you're thinking, this topic is too big for us. That's certainly the way most people think today in our post-postmodern culture. Most people today either adopt the secular view that there is no ultimate meaning, that there is no ultimate purpose, and so this is a fool's errand, Or they assume that if there is some ultimate meaning and purpose to this world, it must certainly be beyond us. It must certainly be something we cannot know. Why waste your time thinking about big questions like like that? Let's just spend more time doing things that we can handle, like wasting our lives away on Facebook or in front of TV. Let's not devote ourselves to the big questions. Friends, in past centuries, many, many people, and not just scholarly university people, but everyday people, thought about these kinds of questions and these kinds of of things. And as Christians, we are in the best possible position of all to think about the big questions because we know and understand that the Bible is the revealed Word of God Himself. God hasn't kept silent about the big questions. He has revealed answers to us in the pages of the Bible. Now, it's true, He didn't reveal everything, but the fact that He didn't reveal everything doesn't mean that He didn't reveal anything, right? He has revealed much, and much of what He has revealed to us about why we're here and our purpose in life, it's, it's good for us. We are helped. We are tremendously helped when we know what the Bible says about why we exist and about why everything else exists. 
Now certainly such a big question as this requires some big thinking and we're very thankful to be able to stand on the shoulders of good and godly people who have come before us. So we're not coming at this question from scratch, coming to the Bible as if nobody else has ever dealt with this question before. The greatest thinker in American history, Jonathan Edwards, dealt with this subject. And frankly, much of what you're going to hear in this sermon is as much is, if not more so, than it is mine. My life was revolutionized by spending time in a little essay that Jonathan Edwards wrote called The End for Which God Created the World. And using both logic and scripture, he convinced me of the great reason that all things exist and it affected the way I see everything. And if I'm able to convince you of what I intend to convince you this morning, my prayer is that these things might just revolutionize the way you see yourself and this world as well. So let's read our key verse this morning. It's Romans eleven thirty six. I could have chosen from scores of verses that say uh, something similar, but this is the one that I probably love the most and appreciate the most. I love Romans eleven thirty six. Um, I hope you already have it memorized, but in case you don't, here it is. Uh, it simply says, "For from Him, meaning God, for from Him, and through Him, and to Him." are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So here is our plan. Uh, First, I want to make some introductory points about the will of God. Second, borrowing from Edwards, I want us to use logic and reason to narrow in on what must be the purpose of everything. And then third, I want us to land on Romans eleven thirty six and other similar verses to prove once and for all that what we've said is true and thoroughly biblical. Are you ready this morning to jump in? Here we go. First, some introductory points about the will of God. Now, you say, wait a minute, Justin, I, I thought we were talking about the purpose of everything. What does that have to do with, with the will of God? The answer is obvious. Whatever moved God to create is the purpose of everything. Whatever his sovereign will is in creation and history, that's the purpose of everything. If we're going to find the purpose of everything, it's found in God and it's found in his motives. It's found in his will, what he has chosen to do and is in fact doing. You can't get at the purpose of everything without dealing with the will of God. And so that's why we're starting with these introductory points. Now, we need to note that the Bible speaks of God's will in two different ways. Sometimes the Bible speaks of God's moral will, or what we might call the will of precept. The will of precept. So, for example, we can say that it is God's will that we not commit murder. To murder is to sin. To murder is to transgress the law of God. It is to violate the moral will of God. God has declared to us what is his moral will for us. Thou shalt not murder is part of the moral will of God. Or a positive example. 
the call for us to love one another. We can say it is the will of God that we love one another. And by that, we're referring to God's will of precept. This is his command for us. God commands all people everywhere to love him with all our heart, souls, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. This is the will of God, his moral will. But the Bible also speaks of God's sovereign will, or what we might call his will of decree. God's sovereign will, or his will of decree. The sovereign will of God refers to the plan of God. The plan that he is working out as the pages of history are unfolding. The sovereign will of God refers to all that God has decreed to come to pass. Ephesians 1.11 tells us that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. So you can see how these two different ways of speaking about the will of God are in fact different and distinct from one another. So for example, it is against God's moral will for someone to be murdered, but it was absolutely a part of God's sovereign will for his son to be murdered. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, it was a violation of the moral will of God, but it was absolutely in keeping with what God's sovereign will had decreed and declared to take place. And so both of these wills exist in God. His moral will, his will of precept, his sovereign will, his will of decree. So when we're getting at the purpose of everything, the question, right, the ultimate question, We're going to be dealing with the sovereign will of God. What has he planned? What has he decreed? What is his purpose? Let me remind us here of five truths about God's sovereign will. First, God's sovereign will is unstoppable. God's sovereign will is unstoppable. Or to put it differently, whatever God has decreed to happen will happen. And this is taught all over the Bible. I mean, this is what it means to be God. Isaiah 46, beginning in verse 8, God says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done listen to this saying my counsel shall stand and i will accomplish all my purpose he goes on to say i have spoken and i will bring it to pass i have purposed and i will do it Whatever God has decreed to happen will happen. One more, Daniel 4, 34, 35. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom endures from generations to generations. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? We make decrees all the time that get stopped, right? 
Every morning, I get up with my to-do list. And every night, it seems, I go to bed and say, what I thought I was going to get done today did not get done today. God has never had that happen. What God decrees always comes to pass exactly as He has planned it. His sovereign will is unstoppable. Number two, God's sovereign will is all-encompassing. 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 There is no part of creation. There is no event in history. There is nothing, no matter how big or how small, that isn't the result of God's sovereign decree. Again, I think Ephesians 1.11 is one of the most profound and worldview-shaping verses of the entire Bible. God works all things according to the counsel of His will. If you wanted, we could take the full length of this sermon and turn to passage after passage after passage in the Bible to show that when Ephesians 1.11 says God works all things, it means all things. It means the events of your life and the events of my life are being worked by God. The weather the rise and the fall of nations, the trials that we walk through and the mountaintops of joy, the the orbit of planets, the migration patterns of birds. There is nothing you can point to that is outside the umbrella of God's sovereign decree. Nothing happens that God has not willed ultimately to happen. Now this gets hard for people. We'll get hung up on this. Justin, are you saying that the score of our local high school football game was decreed by God? Are you saying that the number of crumbs that fall from my cracker when I bite into it was decreed by God? Are you saying that every word which exists right now on Wikipedia was decreed by God, and the moment that each word was added and the moment that each word was deleted, each, all of that is part of God's sovereign decree. Justin, are you really saying that everything, no matter how small, no matter how trivial, has been decreed by God? My answer is no. I'm, I'm not saying that. God is, in Ephesians 1.11, when He says, He works all things according to to the counsel of His will. I don't know how to make sense of that verse if it doesn't mean everything. Why do we have a hard time believing this? Do we think that this was hard for God? (laughs) I mean, God is able to uphold the universe with His pinky finger, sovereignly declaring and decreeing the gazillion events that happen on a microscopic level and a macroscopic level from the first day of creation to the last day of creation is easy for God. This isn't hard for Him. It's easy for Him. He he doesn't break a sweat. And it's His joy to do it. Also, let us remember that while we might consider some things to be trivial, they often prove not to be as trivial as we think. If the fact that God has decreed the flight plan 
of every single bumblebee on every single day of every single year for all of history causes us to see just how powerful and wise our God must be. Is that really trivial? If it points us to his glory? And then there's the butterfly effect, which is really interesting. The butterfly effect was popularized by Edward Lorenz and has now been widely accepted as fact by scientists and mathematicians. And the butterfly effect says that even the smallest, most seemingly trivial occurrences can ultimately prove huge. The butterfly effect gets its name from the theory that the flapping of the wings of a butterfly may ultimately prove to be instrumental in determining the formation and the path of a hurricane. And so if God has a great purpose that he's aiming for in all of creation and history, he must decree not only the ends, but he must decree the means. He, he must decree not only the big things, the big occurrences, but, but all things. And that's exactly what the Bible tells us that he has done. And we could point to many other passages, David in the Psalms saying, Lord, you have written down for me in your book every day that you had prepared for me before I even existed. Number three, God's sovereign will is good. God's sovereign will is good. Can you imagine how terrible it would be if everything that we've said so far was true, but that the God who is working this great sovereign plan is a wicked God with wicked purposes. We can rejoice because God is good and His sovereign plan and His eternal decrees are good. Now, they don't always look good in the short term. They don't always feel good. We may wonder why this child got cancer or why that city got wrecked by an earthquake or why this uh, uh, typhoon, which is is pummeling uh, the Southeast Asia right now, why is that happening? Why was the Son of God, who was all perfection, murdered on a cross? We may look at that and we say, that doesn't look good. But in the end, When all the pieces of the puzzle are put together, we will see that each and every decree of God was pure and good and right. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says, speaking of God, the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. His decrees are good. Number four, God's sovereign will has been partially revealed. God's sovereign will has been partially revealed. So we're not left in the dark about what it is that God has decreed for creation and history. God has made some of what he's up to known to us. And you know this is true. Because everywhere you look, you're seeing something of God's will revealed. I mean, the very fact that you're in this room this morning reveals that it's God's sovereign will for you to be here. Guess what? If it wasn't God's sovereign will for you to be here, you wouldn't be here right now. 
So the fact that you're in this room has revealed to you something about God's decree. He decreed that on this day, at this moment, you would be in this place hearing this message. And so you're actually experiencing, as you live life, God revealing something of His will to you. But we can go a lot further than that. You see, for many centuries, it wasn't even clear to God's people what God was really up to. They, they knew that God was working a great plan. They knew that redemption was a part of it. They knew that a great kingdom had something to do with it. But they didn't understand how God was going to save his people. But that mystery, hidden to so many in the past, has now been made known to us. In these New Testament days in which we live, God has revealed even more of what he is up to and where he is taking history than Abraham knew or Moses knew or David knew or Isaiah knew. In one of the great statements of the Bible about the purpose of everything, Paul says this in Ephesians 1 beginning of verse 7. Just listen carefully to these Magnificent words. They're about Jesus. It's a profound biblical statement about the purpose of everything, and it's about Jesus. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. So Paul says that God has now made known to us in Jesus Christ what used to be a mystery. God has made known to us his plan for the fullness of time. So God has partially revealed to us his sovereign will. Now, we have to keep our balance. There is a line here, and so this is our fifth point. Much of God's sovereign will is still hidden from us. Much of God's sovereign will is still hidden from us. We haven't been told everything. Compared to Adam, Abraham knew much more about God's plan. Compared to Abraham, Moses knew much more. Compared to Moses, David knew much more. Compared to David, Isaiah knew much more. Uh, Compared to Isaiah, the apostles knew much more. Over time, God has been progressively revealing more and more of his ultimate plan to his people. You and I even know more than the apostles did. Because we're standing on 2,000 years of the Holy Spirit making the Scriptures clearer to godly people who now are able to teach us. But friends, as much as you and I can now know about God's purpose of everything, we still must acknowledge that there are things we don't know and that there are things that are hidden. Deuteronomy 29.29 The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law hear it again the secret things belong to the lord our god 
but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. R.C. Sproul says this. Sproul says, Many Christians become preoccupied or even obsessed with finding the will of God for their lives. If the will we are seeking is the secret, hidden, or decretive will, then our quest is a fool's errand. The secret counsel of God is His secret. And He has not been pleased to make it known to us. Far from being a mark of spirituality, the quest for God's secret will is an unwarranted invasion of God's privacy. Sproul says God's secret counsel is none of our business. And this is partly why the Bible takes such a negative view of fortune telling or necromancy and other forms of prohibited practices. We would be wise to follow the counsel of Calvin when he said, when God closes his holy mouth, I will desist from inquiry. And so here is, here is my pledge as we go further in this study. We will go as far as God has revealed. What God has revealed is for us, and we ought to know it and believe it. It gives meaning to our life. It helps us to understand who we are. What God has revealed, we will claim. But when we hit a wall, and we come to a place where God has not revealed something, we must stop and not go any further. To start speculating is dangerous, and we dare not tread where God has not led us to go. Now, all of those are just basic introductory remarks about the sovereign will of God from the various passages of Scripture. The real sermon starts now, okay? Um, As you've probably figured out, we're not going to get through it this morning. Uh, You'll want to be here tonight. In a real sense, I couldn't make it different than this. I tried. In a real sense, if, if the sermon is a feast, it's just the appetizers and the salad this morning, and the entree is tonight. So uh, be here tonight if you can be to get where we're, where we're really heading, because that's where the best stuff is going to be. But let's go ahead and move to our second heading, and we'll just get a little ways with our time remaining this morning. Our second heading is this. What does reason teach us about the purpose of everything? So we want to come to the Bible with clear minds and with good thinking. And Our God is a God of reason and order. Certainly the climax of this sermon and a good part of tonight is going to be landing on Romans 11.36 and other passages that prove what we're saying. But first let's use our powers of reason. And here more than anywhere else I'm in debt to Jonathan Edwards. Seven points I want to make. We're not going to get through them all this morning. We'll just get through some of them. Seven points. Number one. We need to be crystal clear about this at the very beginning. The fact that God is working towards a purpose does not imply that he is lacking in some way. The fact that God is working towards a purpose does not imply that there is some kind of deficiency in God. We cannot and we must not start from a view which says that God needed to create. That God is somehow incomplete if we don't exist. You ever heard people say that in that loving term? You complete me. We do not complete God. God is complete without us. 
We cannot and must not start from a view which says that somehow God's purpose in everything is to meet a need that he has in himself. God is not needy. That's blasphemy. And people really do talk this way. Over the last year, I've had the privilege to talk with many, many, many people in which I asked them the same question. What is the purpose of man? Why are we here? And too many times I have received the answer, we are here because God was lonely. People have said to me, God created man because he needed somebody to love. He was lonely. And to put it politely, that answer is baloney. To suggest that God was lonely before he created is to suggest that somehow he wasn't perfect, that he was deficient. It is blasphemy. It's speaking about God in a way that makes him not God. It denigrates his holy character. If God is perfect in every way, and He is, then He is not and never has been lonely. God is Trinity. God is Father, Son, Spirit, existing together, three persons, one Godhead, for all eternity, in a blessed union with one another. God has forever been unity and community. He has never been lonely. The very Trinitarian nature of God makes it metaphysically and ontologically impossible for him to be lonely. And it's why when people deny the Trinity, they deny something really, really, really essential to God. Whatever God's purpose in creation and history might be, it is not meeting some need in God. Acts 17.25 God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Number two, number two. Since God is perfect, whatever is the highest and best possible goal is his goal in all that he does. Does that make sense? Since he's perfect, whatever is the highest and best possible goal must be his goal in all that he does. God cannot be God, perfect in his being, if the goal he's aiming at in creation and history is a subpar goal. God doesn't do anything subpar. He does all things well. He does all things to the highest degree and for the highest purposes. And so whatever is the best, noblest, highest possible purpose for all things, that is God's purpose. Number three. Since God is perfect, it must be true that He loves most that which is most good and most worthy of love. Since God is perfect, it must be true that he loves most that which is most good and most worthy of love. If God loves most something that is less good, something that is less worthy of love, more than something that is more good or more worthy of love, that's a problem in God. That's a 
disorder of priorities. That is God as an idolater. And the Bible will not allow that. And that can never be. Whatever is most worthy of God's love, that is what God loves most. Number four. Number four. Since nothing or no one is higher, better, more lovely, or more good than God, it is right that God should love himself supremely. This is the crux of everything. I was a junior in high school when a friend of mine called me on the phone and started telling me the things he had been learning and said, I just learned God loves himself more than anything. And I became angry. And I said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. God loves people more than anything. Surely he cannot love himself more than anything. And it was over not just weeks, but months of trying to refute this argument that God really did a Copernican revolution of reshaping the way I see the world so that I became, um, still a long ways to go, but became a little more closely, became closer to God-centeredness and the vision of the world that the Bible presents. Since nothing or no one is higher, better, more lovely, or more good than God, it is right that God should love himself supremely. Piper would say it this way, God is uppermost in his own affections. God's highest love is God, and it must be this way. If God loves anything more than himself, he's violating his own first commandment. If God loves anything more than himself and places anything else higher in his affection than himself, then he sins and he isn't God. We've said it before, we'll say it again. God is the only being in the universe for whom selfishness is not a sin. It's a virtue. And if God doesn't prefer himself, delight in himself, love himself more than all else, he ceases to be God and the whole fabric of the universe is unraveled. I remember as a child singing the song, God loves people more than anything. You remember that song? I used to sing that song. There was a song. I won't sing it now. But God loves, God loves people more than anything. And what I'm telling you is that if that's true, we're all lost and there's no hope for any of us. For many people, this is the hardest thing to accept. They are willing to love God above all as long as they are sure that God loves them above all. But the moment they hear that God might not love them above all, they begin to fall apart. Here's the real test of whether we are God-centered or me-centered. Can we love God and have Him as our highest treasure and our greatest joy, even if it's true that we are not His highest love? Could it be that God does not exist to make much of us, but that in fact God existed quite happily without us for eternity past? 
Could it be that God's purposes in creation and history are not supremely and ultimately about us, but are about something greater and more wonderful than us? And I don't think there's any truth that has had more impact on my life than this one. God loves God more than anything. And while at first it strikes us as not what we want to hear, we later discover that this is one of the most wonderful, life-giving, joy-giving, glorious truths of all. Because if God loves Himself above all, and He delights in Himself above all, then God exists in perfect joy, and He truly has something to offer us. God exists in eternal delight in Himself, immense uh, oceans of joy in Himself. And because of that, He can give us joy in Himself. What if there is some way that you can be brought in to God's delight in Himself? What if there was some way that God could not only continue forever loving His own holy character, but He could actually share His joy, overflow His joy, gather us up into His joy in Himself? Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. We're not there yet, and it's time to stop. So we're going to stop right here in the midst of this second heading. And as a way of closing, let me ask you to look at Romans 11.36 again. Romans 11.36. What does it actually say? What is the purpose revealed in this verse? Second half of the verse. To Him are all things. Do we need to talk about what all means again? To Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. I mean, just looking at the plain words of this verse, it appears we are being told that the purpose of all things has everything to do with God being glorified, God being praised, God being enjoyed, God being exalted and lifted up. At least according to Romans 11.36, the purpose of all things is that God will be glorified. But that's just one verse. And isn't it dangerous to build your theology, especially your theology about the biggest question of all, the meaning of everything on one half of one verse? So, Galatians 1.5, to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Ephesians 3.21, to Him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Philippians 4.20 To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 1.17 To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 2 Timothy 4.18 The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Hebrews 13.21 May God equip you with everything good 
that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Peter 4.11 Whoever speaks, speak as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jude one twenty five. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Revelation 1.6 To Him who has made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do you hear a theme here? Don't walk around going, what's the purpose of everything? That's a deep question. I can't possibly know. The Bible tells you over and over and over again why you're here and why this world exists. It's that He will be known and savored and exalted, that He would be glorified. Roman, uh, Revelation 5.13 I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and in all that is in them saying, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Revelation 7.12 Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now Herman, these are not words written by human authors about what they hope will be the end of all things. These are God-breathed. Holy Spirit-inspired words revealing to us the great purpose for which all things exist. What is the purpose of everything? That forever and ever and ever God be glorified. So what does that mean? What does that have to do with your Monday and your Tuesday and your Wednesday? That's where we're going tonight. Let's pray.